Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. And guys, we are in for a treat this week. I've got a gentleman from the agriculture industry. He is the owner of Colorado Craft Beef, uh, along with his wife. He is a veteran of the cattle industry and an expert in supply chain and economics. So I wanted to bring him on the show. Please welcome Jeff Smith. How you doing, Sam? Thanks for having me, sir. Dude, I'm great. I'm glad that you're here. You bring a, a different angle to the show today you are well involved in the uh, in the craft beef industry aren't you yeah uh, the craft beef uh, i do some consulting in the ag space as well so you know across the agricultural spectrum i've dealt with people from coors to land of lakes as a commercial sales manager i've done my own projects i've helped people with some of theirs you know in verticals from barley and hops all the way through, you know, seed production in the Willamette Valley in Oregon and cattle and other protein industries, you know, around the Midwest and even out to the East Coast. So a weird, diverse set of skills that uh, come from (laughs) literally having your boots in the dirt. Well, it's it's really interesting to me um, when I saw your request pop up in the in the guest lists is because that I grew up in agriculture. I grew up around it, like constantly. Yeah, everything revolved around cycles and seasons, and the entire community around me was farming based. And so I've still got quite strong roots in those communities. My sister and her uh, her husband are both farmers, and uh, you know, I really wanted to. You don't ever think about food until you just go to the shop and buy it, and then all of a sudden, one day it might not be there. And you're the guys that are getting the food to the shops, aren't you? We are, uh, you know, luckily FedEx is a part of our value chain. So <laughs> FedEx is a big part of that. I um, saw that. I saw that. But yeah, so one way or another, you know, there's hundreds of families working every day and well, thousands of families across the country, but probably for every family in the United States or abroad, if you're eating three meals a day, there's probably hundreds of families that contributed to those meals, depending on the value chains you're in. And I just don't, I, th- I don't think we see it. You see, I live in a city. Um, my shoes are clean most of the time. And I go to the shop, I get the things I need. I come home and I cook it without ever giving a second thought to where these things are coming from and how they're being produced, you know, in our country. And so, man, I don't even know where to take this interview today. I've got a page of notes um, because you are a small business owner now and you have a, a huge, huge ranch and you produce craft beef, but you've also this logistical knowledge and, and everything of how the industry works. So I think, I think I'll stick with your story first and tell us a little bit about Colorado craft beef, uh, the history of the ranch, because I know it's been there a long time and what it is you guys actually do over there. Yeah, so the... First thing to note is the ranch is actually my wife's family's ranch. So my wife is fifth generation on this particular piece of real estate in Eastern Colorado. Uh, our little girls are generation six. Wow. And yeah, so the family originally founded the ranch about a quarter mile to my left uh, in a set of trees over there in 1913. And in 1917, they were granted the deed to their first half section of land, which is 320 acres. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, it's it's grown, you know, by a very large factor. Uh, the main section of the commercial ranch is still operated by my wife's dad. Uh, he's 66 years old and has a six pack because he's a hardworking rancher. And, you know, I don't know if I could outrun him, uh, but, <laughs> but I might be able to sit on him. That's my defense mechanism. I don't know. So it's man, those, those it's, old men, they get strong. Old man strength. <laughs> that's a real thing. I, I do jujitsu and uh, I rely on that old man strength with some of those young guys in the gym. So there's definitely some of that in play. Yeah. The, uh, the best so way the, to win at jujitsu is to let the, let the young guys just burn all that energy out. Let just, just let them go for a little bit and then jump. There, in. There's definitely some strategy to letting certain people gas themselves out. <laughs> So, so uh, back to the ranch. Yeah. So Colorado craft beef came out of a conversation that my wife and I had uh, with my father-in-law where he talked about succession planning for the ranch and things of that nature, which, you know, in your podcast, I've heard you guys talk about some of those planning mechanisms quite a lot. 
Well, they get, a, they get overlooked a lot. You know, it's, it's yeah. not something we ever think is going to happen, but, it, you know, yeah. It's just yeah. It's one of those conversations, isn't it? A thousand percent. So he was talking to us, and luckily, I'm a business nerd. So I've got a degree in agricultural, agricultural business. I've worked in private equity. I've worked in multiple, on multiple continents. And so when it comes down to, uh, you know, how things run, I actually have a sign up here on my bookshelf behind me that my wife made for me that says, don't worry, I have a spreadsheet for that. <laughs> and that is a thousand percent accurate. So when my father-in-law starts talking about succession planning, I, I asked him, I said, well, you know, respectfully, I know your business model well enough to be dangerous. Is that repeatable for the next generation? And he said, no. Uh, mm. He said, there's things changing in the industry. You guys need to change how you, how you get to market because much of the agricultural cycle, whether you're in pecans or oranges or cattle, is very commodity driven. There's a known price. There's a very large market with a few processors that buy everything. So it's very, it's very integrated. It's very efficient, but it's also very inflexible when it comes to a pricing model. So, so break, break that down for me in, in English. So sure. you, you grow some cows and the market decides what the cows are worth. And then there's three or four different customers that will come and buy those cows from you. They all own manufacturing plants, but they all pay roughly the same price. So yep. you've got no control over what you sell your commodity for, correct? They're kind yeah. of. You can hedge, you can use futures and options right, right. trading as a risk management tool. But by and large, um, if you think of the beef cattle industry as a vertical, 85% of the beef that is consumed in the United States is controlled by four companies. That's what I was trying to get at there. That is, yeah. there, there's the data point. Um, so what Kara and I did, luckily, uh, Kara has a master's degree in cattle nutrition. Uh, she's mm -hmm. very, very educated on the science of cattle. Uh, I'm a spreadsheet nerd that likes to talk on podcasts and, <laughs> you know, uh, be creative. So we decided that our go-to-market strategy should be something that aligns with our skill set, not the opposite. And so we decided to change from a price taking model to a price making model. Okay. Uh, and that's where we went direct to consumer. So we have a connection to our customers. Now we have their email addresses. We can, we can throw the lever on email marketing and generate revenue if we need to. There's, you create a lot more dialability from a business management standpoint. Man. You try it. Try explaining that to a farmer, the value of your own customer database, the value of your own list of, of, a, of a group of people you've already sold to, man, you, you're in the ideal industry to, to, to really you know, get in there and make some changes because you know, I got to sell my cows to a buyer. Well, no, yeah. now I can build my own customer base and sell, sell it myself, man. It's well, and, and that is one layer of it. But the next layer, when you start talking about agricultural production, whether you're in cattle or whatever space it is, right? Especially on the protein side, you know we're perishable. I'm shipping frozen product, and I'm mm -hmm. hoping FedEx makes yeah. good on our business arrangement. But when we start to unpack the layers of skill sets that we have to employ with Colorado Craft Beef, is we are logistics managers. We have to figure out our own supply chains with perishable with. Uh, dry goods like boxes and insulators and tape and labels and mm -hmm. all the different things. And luckily there's a larger margin in that side of the business, but you have to grow it to that point. And if you're trying to make that conversion from a very commodity driven cyclic model, mm -hmm. you're going to have a really hard time changing gears and being able to invest the amount of time and effort it takes. Um, and as you start to grow, your working capital requirements get very, very intensive because, you know, you're owning cattle for months and months on, on time. Right. And it all has different values and different layers of the process. So when you have a borrowing base operating line, there's different things you have to do to manage that. Mm -hmm. And if you're not as a young producer, you know, I turned 40 about three weeks ago. I'm really, thank you. I'm, I'm really young in the grand scheme of agricultural producers, the average age of a farmer in the United States is 60 years old right now. Wow. So the problem you may run into in a lot of industry or in a lot of agricultural production models is there's young people coming up. They don't have their own capital to get on board, to do it how they want to do it. Mm -hmm. But the older generation is holding things in such a way that they won't release it. Um, mm -hmm. 
And there is, there's a little bit of economics behind that. If you take the last 50 years from the 1970s, if you were to invest a dollar in agricultural production in general, mm-hmm. you would get back a dollar 35. Not a horrible margin, uh, especially when you're doing it at scale, you should be able to make decent money. Right. Well, the problem is in today's market, that number's around a dollar 14. Oh, that's so the profit, Yeah, so the profitability has been detonated by 60% over the last generation. Mm-hmm. So it's no, it's no surprise that the older generation is like, hey, hold on, you can't go that direction. Things are too tight. Um, or, you know, quite frankly, there's a lot of ag production operations across the country that operate on equity that was built on previous generations and they, and they are not cash flow positive. Mm. They have a ton of equity. They can leverage into it with the bank. But at the end of the day, what's likely going to happen is they're probably going to be sold by the bank because they've burned all the equity by not operating their business optimally. Yeah, that's that, man, that's such a tough road to go down. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I see similar things have happened in the UK farming industry. You know, just from just from watching out over there, and the amount of difficulty um, that I, I don't want to get too personal. Uh, my sister and her husband own their own farm now, but for years they were leasing, and it took it took a small fortune to even with a good business book and even with good credentials, it still took them a lot of uh, time and effort and a lot of trouble to to buy land to farm on based on their farming income. You know? Yeah. Uh, one of the weird things in agriculture, like there's a, there's a ranch about 20 miles, you know, straight behind the computer here. Mm-hmm. And the ranch is about 4,000 acres. It's got a really nice house on it. A couple of uh, employee houses that you could, you know, really make a good operation of it. Mm-hmm. But if you take down the real estate and you take down the improvements and you calculate the amount of cattle you can run on that piece of real estate, the net revenue expected from that number of cattle won't cover the payment on the real estate. Oh, so what we've got, and this is why you see a lot of people investing in real estate, especially in the ag sector Mm -hmm. is you've got this upside down uh, relationship with regard to profitability and production. So, you know, not, not that I know anything about your sister's plight, but ag by and large, if you're trying to buy ground and you don't have other ground to leverage, or other assets to put up against it. Yeah. You, can't, you can't make it work on the production value alone. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's something to think about, and it's it's uh, it makes it difficult to get into into farming. Um, yeah. You know, I've got several friends that are what you would call young farmers, and they're all in their mid thirties to forties now, and they're still classified as young farmers because they just don't mm-hmm. have that, um, I guess, experience of bad seasons. Um, Tell me a little bit more about your ranch, about your ranch and operation. Do you make all your own, all your own cow food? What, what's that called? Um, silage. Do you, yeah. Do you grow yeah. all your own feed and everything? You fully self-contained? How's that work? So we are not. Okay. Uh, the ranch that we're on is a lot of sand. The soil is really sandy. Mm-hmm. So from a cultivation standpoint, the soil zones are not good enough to grow crops. So we do the very best thing we can with that ground. We run cattle on grass and they convert non-arable ground that grows non-edible grass for humans Mm -hmm. into steak which is a superfood so you know hats off to the cows that they can convert scrub ground into steak that's my next Uh, question it's just it's just scrub then huh because i'm I'm looking on your website and that's that's without being detrimental to your ranch that's what it looks like it looks like a lot of just un unfarmable area Yep. So of the 9 million acres that are available for agricultural purposes in the United States, 70% of those acres are not tillable. Wow. They're not, it's not arable land. It's a lot of grassland. It's a lot of desert uh, or it's too marshy. So somewhere mm-hmm. in some places down in Florida are too wet to farm. So they graze cattle. So there's a utilization piece when you start thinking of 30% of the ground is able to farm. Everybody says, oh, we should grow more stable crops we should do this well you just strictly can't right 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 so and uh yeah i don't think beef's going anywhere is it it's been one of the most uh it's been one of the most stable crops since we colonized the country so it's it's the most bioavailable protein you can get uh and then there's a ton of different ways it can be processed have different flavor and of course there's a bunch of different cuts 
um, as opposed to you know a chicken, which is mainly you know three sections of meat. Uh, obviously, with a steer, you can get things from also buco to brisket to ribs or a great ribeye steak or burger or any number of different things. So, you know, to wrap back to your question, we don't grow anything on the ranch other than cattle. We have mm -hmm. to bring in hay from other areas. Um, and then we have a feed yard, a feed lot where we finish our cattle right. uh, for the beef company. And actually just three days ago on Saturday, uh, we took that down under a joint venture uh, with the current owner because he wanted to step away. Uh, so we integrated that into our value chain and now we're one more step vertically integrated. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's, you know, just, just keep adding projects, right? That's what you do as an entrepreneur. <laughs> I don't, it, it never, it never, ever ends. It never ends. No. How would you say that selling direct to the consumers has impacted your business over selling to uh, large co-ops? So we have done some, we did some commodity business before we took on the Colorado craft beef model. And I'll, I'll give you a really fun data point. So we ran a couple hundred steers one year, just mm -hmm. commercially, we turned them out on grass. Uh, we did hedge the market. And on those animals, we ended up making approximately 22% profit on those cattle by hedging. But if you strip the hedging income out and the yeah. options trading income out, I, we I, made $18 an animal. $18 per cow. Yeah, and we so, had a couple hundred. So I, <laughs> to that, I would say, what's the point? Mm -hmm. But That's absolutely the question. Also to that, it's like, how do you hedge a cow? I mean, I understand buying puts and, and calls and selling options. on. How do you hedge a cow? How does that work? Uh, they do that. It's the same type of thing you can do in the stock market. It's mm -hmm. ran through the uh, CME or the Chicago Board of Trade. Okay. All that stuff's traded out of Chicago. They have cattle contracts so you just buy a contract oh so you just buy a contract just like you would buy an option huh yeah but it's uh it's a in cattle it's fifty thousand pounds per contract got it okay um, so you you don't want to get overextended you don't want to get underextended the nice thing is all the different commodities are traded so you can trade mm -hmm. corn you can trade silage you can trade whatever you want so if the corn market's way low and you want to lock in a cost of feed you can do that right 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 the problem is if you're a smaller operator and you can't put together the capital to do that, mm -hmm. you, you can't afford to manage your risk. But as you would probably say, hell, you can't afford not to manage your mm -hmm. risk. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah, because you, know, you, you also have to bear in mind that contracts expire. Those, mm -hmm. You know, so you, you could lose out. Uh, you, it's easy to lose money in business. I figured that out. Yeah. You know, it's really easy to make it too. The hardest part <laughs> of that is keeping it. Keeping it. I would say make, making money is an art form and keeping it's a science. There you go. Um, you should get that t-shirt made. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I'll have to make a note. I, I've got some idle curiosity here, Jeff, and it's going to sound like a really immature question because I, I really don't know the answer. Um, how, how much meat comes off a cow? How much food? How many people is that cow feeding? Is it feeding one person for six months? Is, yeah. Help me out here. Just how much meat comes off of one one cow? So let's let's just talk the metrics of the beef cattle supply chain in the U.S. Yeah. The beef cattle supply chain in the U.S. harvests around. Hold on, just to make sure I get the math right. I we don't have fact checkers here. Yeah, it's all right. It's around thirty-five million cows a year harvested in the United States. Wow. 35 million. Cows. So wow. it's around the top end production is around 660,000 animals a week that can mm -hmm. be harvested in the country. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting number because when you start looking at how we're going to change the industry or we need to change whatever production we're doing, mm -hmm. we have to do that without disrupting the chain because you probably saw some of the beef shortages. I'm using the air quotes yeah. for the yeah. you listening during COVID, well, during COVID, we only got down to 450,000 a week and we saw massive shortages. And to be frank, the shortages were logistics. They weren't production. Right, um, right. All other conversation. But, you know, to your point, the average person in the US eats about 78 to 80 pounds of beef a year. Uh, but the easy math that everybody in my industry kind of focuses on is a family of four mm -hmm. in the United States will eat a half of beef a year. And okay. that ends up being around two to 250 pounds of finished product. Wow. 
Huh. I'm just I'm just planning for when I, I live on a farm and I raise all my own food, how many cows I'm going to need to. But it's a lot less cow than I thought. Yeah, I, I, well, that's a lot of meat. It is, but I mean, if, you, if their chicken is actually about double. People eat a lot more chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, pork pork is moderately in line with beef, um, and that's all based on price point. You know, chicken is one of those things you mix it with whatever you want, and it tastes like that. Uh, where beef is one of those things that you know nobody ever went out and celebrated the job promotion of the chicken breast. You always go out and do it with a steak. <laughs> so there's a different there's different value propositions in the market. Yeah. Um, but what we've noticed, probably the weirdest thing within our space. Uh, COVID especially caused this, people weren't cooking at home as much. So the right. direct to consumer market was less picky. They demanded less quality. They didn't demand the crazy high end quality that right, they do now, right. but everybody got locked at home and then nobody could buy a smoker or a grill because they were all sold out because everybody's mm-hmm. locked in their house and you can only eat your own cooking for so long before you have to look something up on the internet. So what that's done yeah. with you know, what I would determine is our brand being kind of a luxury higher end beef brand, you know, we're not crazy high price, but we are more expensive than the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see people hitting us up more regularly for private parties for Christmas or, oh, we have family coming in. Can you overnight a box? We forgot to order something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've, we've done it the very best we can trying to make that work for as many people as possible. Uh, but it's interesting watching the dynamics of how people cook and how that's changed uh, based on the events of the last two and a half years. You're absolutely right. I mean, I would eat out prior to COVID. I would eat out, you know, as often as possible um, right. and, and just had paper plates at the house so I didn't have to do dishes. Um, and now I probably cook a good 85 to 90% of all my meals, just cook them at the house and steak included. So what is the best way to cook steak? And that's a that's a jujitsu match waiting to happen because everybody's got their own opinion. Of course. Uh, you know, I, I prefer if, if I have all the time in the world, no constraints, what I will actually do is I'll take a good ribeye or something like that. I'll put it on a pellet grill for about 20 minutes Mm -hmm. at a really low heat just to get a little bit of smoke flavor. And then I'll reverse sear that thing on a, on a gas grill or a charcoal grill that's burning, you know, five or 600 degrees and get that really good char. So you yeah. get the smoke flavor with the char. That's really my preferred method. Um, as long as you're not cooking it past medium, I'll <laughs> get along. Um, and uh, I, and I'm also, I also don't get offended when I smoke a brisket and somebody wants barbecue sauce. I mean, if there's a time to have barbecue sauce, it's probably then. Thank you. Thank you. But you're not an A1 guy then? No. Dude, he almost spat out his drink. <laughs> Actually, I will say, I will say A1 is... Well, the funniest thing about A1 is it was developed during the Civil War. So mm-hmm. who in, in their right mind was, uh, you know what we need right now? We need a steak sauce. That'll fix every, all the things. Probably some guy that was having to eat horse said, you know what I need right now? I need a steak sauce. Like necessity right. is the mother of invention. Like so I can't I, choke down this horse. I do love the flavor of A1. And if you go to like a greasy spoon breakfast restaurant, you mm-hmm. know, in Vegas or after a night of, you know, debauchery, a one on a steak with a hangover and a bloody mary is pretty hard to beat <laughs> the, the man he said it himself a one on a steak with a hangover <laughs> i love it so um man you've got a bit of a family affair going on over there it's uh great 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 grandfather's ranch and and, and dad and, and, and the wife run it what's it like working so closely with family how do you manage that dynamic um <laughs> Sometimes they might listen to, to this. They might listen. So just they might. Um, <laughs> trying to think of the right way to say it. There's there's challenges. Uh, there's there's expectations that are met, but probably unmet and also not communicated well. Mm-hmm. So just all those typical relationship things. Probably the hardest part I would say is when people want to run a business a certain way and other family members don't mm-hmm. it creates a bit of a rub yeah um, or or if you think or if you're trying to move in a new direction people do get very and i'm not talking about our family i'm talking about agriculture in general yeah yeah people get set in their ways you know grandpa did it like this that's how we're going to do it and i do some consulting as well and one of the things i ask people is well why you know why is this process in place 
how have you decided to move this direction? Oh, well, that's, that's just what we've done. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that's a horrible answer. <laughs> Maybe it's still the correct answer. Maybe it is the right process. Yeah. Well, let's get a whiteboard out and figure it out. You know, what's yeah. your root cause? What's your drivers? How's this driving the business? Mm-hmm. And if you in agriculture or manufacturing or whatever business vertical it may be with family or longtime business partners, trying to take a business in a new direction can sometimes be seen as threatening to the old guard. So communication is probably the biggest thing, Yeah. but also being ready to move a business a new direction on your own if you have to, um, while not ruining Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you just can't up and quit your job now, can you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, the the good news is, uh, you know, Colorado Craft Beef, we, uh, we took our own path and to my father-in-law's credit, I believe he wanted that for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we've put it together uh, from the bottom to the top. You know, the building I'm sitting in right now was built in 2020 as an extension of the beef company. The walk-in freezer that all the beef ships out of is through two walls that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two years ago, almost two years ago to the month, we moved into that section of the building and now it's got walk-in freezers and you know, we're health department inspected. And that's the kind of thing that isn't an easy lift, all right. that regulatory stuff. But also one could argue, oh, you don't have to be health department inspected because it's frozen and nobody will ever come look, but you have to manage a liability. You have to manage all yeah. those different risk categories. And my, I love my brothers and sisters in agriculture, but I would say they are one of the most typical groups of people to avoid regulation, avoid getting <laughs> certified in certain things. And that just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can understand why though. I mean, you know, farms are in the middle of nowhere and we'll just make this work and we'll, we'll get it, we'll do it the way it is. I mean, you know, I, I grew up around that. I, I yeah. see a need for regulation as a, as a business owner, but I also see if there's, if there's no regulator within 200 miles, who's going to see it, you know, this is a, it, it, it makes you evolve as a business when you want to get those permits and start doing things the right way so i have a question for you there's there's um my little sister she runs a farmer's uh, group uh over on facebook she's got a couple of thousand uh small business owners that are farmers and i wanted to ask you for the benefit of that group for somebody that's into farming that's working on a farm and that's going by the traditional methods that, that are selling to the uh the big supply houses and then maybe a little bit interested in more kind of how you guys do it what's some steps that you would take uh first starting out to go and be a little bit more independent of a uh, producer sure so i've got a great example of that Mm -hmm. so i got a call from another producer down near tampa florida a very nice young lady i was introduced to her through one of the influencers we work with as a family friend of theirs and I checked out her website and she wants, she does go direct to consumer in her local market, but she wanted to go national. Mm-hmm. And I, she said, Hey, I, I want to pick your brain. Can you get on the phone with you? I said, yeah, no problem. And, you know, first and foremost, let me preface this by saying, if we raised all the cattle we're physically able to, we couldn't feed all of Denver. So when people think, oh, I, I can't share my competitive secrets man, get over yourself, put that <laughs> mindset away, Yeah. work on some good karma, because in my personal opinion, the more you describe your own model, the more likely you are to understand it at a deeper level. Oh yeah. I mean, if you're going to teach somebody, you know, back to jujitsu, if you're going to teach somebody how to do a certain move yeah. and you've done it a hundred times and you've never articulated how it must function to be properly ex- executed, Mm-hmm. You're not a master yet. That, so for anybody that thinks you've got to have the scarcity mindset and you can't share it, you will probably learn more sharing your own process with other people than you ever did building it. Amen. So, so in agriculture, first and foremost, quit thinking your neighbors are your enemy. That's my first statement. <laughs> Dude, if I had a if I had a, a, a little noise board right now, I'd I'd, <laughs> I'd make an explosion noise because you just dropped a bomb. Uh, but well, then. Bradley might sue me for infringement, so I'd have to find a different set of noises. But that's so critical. The My business changed when I stopped trying to build a taller fence and started to build a longer table. 
and That's right. you never know like you might be teaching as 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 a high belted jujitsu guy you might be teaching a, a blue belt something and maybe that blue belt learns something from a different brown belt that you don't know and like you can learn all all the time so i mm-hmm. i don't see other business owners as, as competition i see them as people i can collaborate with and learn from and they they share knowledge with me i share it with them and we all get a little better you know absolutely aligned incentives and shared missions are a big thing and that and, so, and karma like you give it out it comes back so i always try to give yeah. out good shit and i mainly get good shit back right so when i spoke to that young lady in tampa mm-hmm. and she wanted to go national from tampa i said why and she said well because i think that's the next step and i said well maybe but eight months out of the year, you're much, much warmer than the rest of the country. So you've got a natural disadvantage by trying to ship from Tampa to the North. Mm -hmm. I said, I really think you should probably focus on your local regions because you have so many population centers nearby to minimize your risk of travel because transport is the biggest issue. Right. Uh, There's cattle producers all over the country that raise good beef, but getting good beef from California to New York is not as profitable as getting good beef from Tennessee to New York. Hmm. And we just have to understand those logistics. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, it's six times as far. Yeah, well, and, and then you have to think about which way the commodities move. And by commodities, I don't mean ag. I mean, which way are shipping terminals operating from your mm. point of origin? Yeah. So oh, I'm yeah. in Colorado. If I need to ship to the East Coast, I'm competing with a ton of freight that is going that direction. So my cost to go to New York is double my cost to go to LA. Hmm. And that's all driven by which direction the freight is moving. So if you go from Colorado to the Rust Belt in Ohio or Michigan, right? Then the freight rates are insane Could because you, nobody needs to, nobody needs shit and nobody needs to deliver anything up there. I mean, yeah, nobody's well, making trips up there. Well, no, it's actually quite the opposite. You've oh, got all the manufacturing in the Rust Belt. And they're moving product into the Rust Belt for manufacturing. So you're competing with all these incoming materials. You're oh. trying to get in that same chain. So you can't get you can't get food on the shipments. I well, get you it. can. It just costs you more. So if we look yeah. at LA, what's happening in Colorado is all the stuff is coming into the port of Long Beach or the port of Los Angeles or the port of Stockton. Mm-hmm. And it all moves to the east and it goes to Vegas and it goes to Denver. And about Denver is where the cutoff is before you start coming up from the Gulf. Right. So all those trucks have to go back. All those planes for FedEx have to go back because all that stuff coming in from China is moving in from the West. So they're all empty when they go back. Absolutely. So, so they're can... going to charge you a much lower rate to get your stuff on that truck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it... and that's and that's the biggest thing somebody should try to learn. You know, if somebody wants to go direct to consumer, mm-hmm. find your market. And the market isn't where you think the market's going to be. It's the market is where the market points you to. With your logistics cost, with with freight distribution, is it UPS or FedEx? It depends, because UPS is hubbed out of Memphis and Indianapolis. Right. So if you're if you're near Indy, you're in great shape because you can get into one of those main terminals. Um, or there's a gentleman I know in Oregon, great great guy. They had a good company out there, direct to consumer beef company, literally in the middle of nowhere. I think the town they're in has like nine people. Wow. And I'm from Oregon, so. No hate mail on that. I love that part <laughs> of the world. But if I was going to ship from there, John Day, Oregon is their closest drop-off point to get into the FedEx chain. That truck then has to travel three hours north through a mountain pass to get to the closest actual terminal. Wow. So your risk of travel at that point is insane. Yeah. yeah. Where I'm 90 minutes from Denver. When I get it, when I drop off stuff at our local FedEx ground terminal. They're 40 minutes from the Denver International Airport. I have a really small window I have to hit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not that tight where you've got all this other where you get the guy in Central Oregon that has this huge list of things that could go wrong mm-hmm. because the transportation isn't isn't ideal. So you have to look at the market, you have to be honest with yourself, and you have to determine where the market indicators say you can be successful, not where you want to be successful. Yeah. And that's the, the hardest part. I, I think a, a lot of guys overlook that. They they go they go with what they think that they want to do, and they, they just don't realize that that data is available to go read and go check out before they make those kind of decisions. Like, 
who outside of the logistics industry understands that shipping rates are going to differ from coast to coast and moving stuff different ways based on how busy routes are i mean you know the the more you know right well it's and, and it's as that data comes in as you operate your business don't get married to an idea right 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 take the data and pivot as you are required to because if, if you're three steps behind and you're always lagging you're giving away profit yeah yeah no doubt no doubt far too many of us uh refuse to change our beliefs based on the introduction of new evidence um i think people really need to spend more time studying what's in front of them and uh they could uh, probably skip out a few mistakes um yeah. well I, if you let other people make those mistakes for you it's better for your body <laughs> let them pay for it amen that's right let them pay tuition on that lesson <laughs> So what's the best part of your job then, being a self-employed guy that, that raises cows? And, and man, I, I can't even imagine getting to go to work on a 5,000-acre ranch every day, man. You know, it's, uh, it's really good about two-thirds of the time, and then it's 100 degrees or it's blowing sideways and snowing. So, you know, you get your trade-offs. Yeah, yeah, uh, no doubt. You know, probably the most fun part for us is something like this. So my wife's going on some podcasts as well, but the whole point of Colorado craft beef was not to sell beef. It was not to make money. It was not to conquer the world. It was to engage the public with food mm. and not, and not even our food. Like I would love for everybody to be eating my steak, but as I mentioned, we can't feed all of Denver. Right. Right. So I have to be inclusive of other people in my industry. I don't stand on, on what we've built and shout down at other producers. Um, I recently had a gentleman call me, he heard me on a podcast and he's like, Hey, I'm two hours South of you. I buy from another rancher. Why should I buy from you instead of him? And I said, you shouldn't. He said, do you like the product he provides? He said, I absolutely do. And I said, stick with him. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to poach customers, man. I said, I'm glad you liked it. I hope you learned something. Maybe share it with your rancher buddy. I said, I'm not here to be that guy. And so being able to make connections like this, being able to share the message with the masses, because depending on who you listen to, the people that are involved in agriculture is only one to 2% of our national population. Wow. That's really small. And it's really impressive that one to 2% of the population has so much infighting amongst itself. Dude, we we got to protect you guys, man. If you guys go extinct, we'll, we'll end up eating each other. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's an old adage that, uh, in your life, you're going to need a banker one time. You're going to need an undertaker one time. You're going to need a doctor one time. But three times a day, you need a farmer. I yeah, we we should look after these guys um, because I I certainly can't grow cows. So yeah. <laughs> so you know, our our love is engaging people with agriculture, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people that say, "Oh, we're here to educate." I'm not. If you want to talk, I'm happy to hang out. We have customers out to the ranch a few times a year. Uh, I haven't had any of them come out to roll jujitsu with me yet. Uh, mm. We've actually got a gentleman that is a, a shout out to Klaus. Uh, he's a purple belt in jujitsu. He's also a strength coach for the Denver Nuggets. Oh, wow. And he's like, oh, hey, when I come out, we'll roll. I'm like, no, nah, man, I'm good. <laughs> I'm all good. He's got, he's like three inches taller than me and he's a monster. <laughs> and it, it was really crazy. He got us tickets to uh, one of the playoff games last fall. And I know how tall he is. He's three inches taller than I am. And I'm not a small guy. And on the court, he looked like a normal sized guy with all the NBA players running around. Like I he looked quite shorter than he actually is. It's just <laughs> incredible from a perception standpoint. Yeah. I, I but, don't think, I don't think I fancy doing jujitsu with him either. You know, no, it actually, he showed up in a, like a hatchback Toyota and he got out and he just like kept coming out of the car. Like, <laughs> I'm like, man, if you get in a wreck, you're in bad shape. We're going to need to cut that thing off of you. Yeah, dude. Like, I just, I wonder why they can't go bow hunting for cattle. That, that might be a fun, that might be a, you've got 5,000 acres. From a, <laughs> from an animal welfare standpoint, that's not got the best optic. <laughs> You have to be certified in that too. But that wasn't my next question. What was, was, um, you know, I see a lot of alternative proteins starting to make their way into the mainstream, uh, appearing more and more um, in the media. 
What are your thoughts on the future of protein and the future of the cattle industry as you know as it's starting to have to compete with other forms of protein? I'm not going to say insects out loud. Yeah, um, I guess I, I don't know for sure, of course, or you know, we, I wouldn't be on a podcast. I'd be sitting on a boat in Tampa, trading <laughs> the market, just doing that. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really hard to get people away from traditional protein. You know, people like turkey on Thanksgiving. They yep, love prime rib yeah. on. They love prime rib on Christmas. Do I see them getting exploratory? Sure. But even the Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger, some of that stuff, like actually JBS, the uh, big meat producer out of Brazil, mm-hmm. they just announced this week they had a, a alternative meat company and they just shut it down. And this is one of the biggest meat companies in the world. Well, and they, I don't and particularly they fancy it. I, I don't fancy eating it. Like so, I've never tried it. So, <laughs> well, it's back to marketplace demand, isn't it? You, you would want yep. the marketplace to demand a product, and then you go create the product. It seems like they've got this a bit backwards. Like they've created the product, and now they're trying to convince us all it's a good idea to eat it. Mm-hmm. Like, are, are there any kind of differences between like real meat and artificial? Because it's called artificial meat, but they say it's the same thing. They just grew it in a lab. I don't understand this. Is is that true? that's out of my wheelhouse i'm I'm the spreadsheet guy not the science guy i got you no 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 i I got you i just it it interests me with this like this massive movement towards you know uh insect-based protein and i i don't particularly fancy it i think i'd rather say the cows what i would share is there's there's known articles out there there's white papers and there's research that you know they were using pea protein in one of the artificial burgers and then they came up with traces of glyphosate which is roundup. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for everything you trade, you're going to have a consequence. Yes. And all I would say from that standpoint is if it was that much better, they would be pounding us with data on why it was better and they aren't. So by that measure alone, if they don't have something to really share other than a gimmicky pit, a gimmicky pitch, I don't see it really getting that big. And their cost of production is astronomical. Good, good, because I'd, I'd much rather eat real cows. You know? I, I support that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no doubt. So I got a couple more questions, Jeff, for you on this uh, on this show. Um, one I like to touch on is I'm a huge proponent of, of continuing education and um, going out and seeking out new things to learn. Um, are there any good books that you've read recently or come across that you'd like to share with us that maybe we could learn something from? Sure. Uh, I've actually got a, a laundry list of books I read a lot. I'm actually within the next couple hours, I'm headed out for a 16 hour drive to Tennessee. Oh, wow. So I'm going to be audio booking and podcasting it up. But uh, I've got a few of them. So if anybody's going through a rough patch, I've probably given 30 copies of this book out. Uh, it's called The Traveler's Gift, and it's by Andy Andrews. Uh, phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal read uh, for anybody from high school age up. I've probably read the book myself 20 times. Uh, It's a self-help book, but it's written in such a way that you can't put it down. Uh, If you're a history nerd, you're going to love it. Um, Another really fun one for the economists that listen, uh, Red Notice by Billy Browder is a great book. That is, uh, yeah, he's a hedge fund manager. Uh, his attorney was uh, imprisoned by Vladimir Putin and uh, died in a gulag. And he had a red notice issued on him by Vladimir Putin and red notices uh, international arrest warrant through Interpol. Oh, wow. So, but it talks about the fall of the Soviet Union and some of the things that happened over there. So from an economic and political standpoint, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think we're going to have some... Uh interesting history books get written over the next six months as well <laughs> talking yeah. about that uh, that particular area of the world and um, the, other, the other book i would recommend on the ag side of things mm-hmm. and it's exceptionally well written and it's written by a couple people that are not ag centric um one of them is a biochemist uh and i don't know diana's background uh look at the book sacred cow oh okay uh 
that's a discussion about the ag production industry from someone that does not operate within the industry. Um, Rob, Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers wrote the book. Rob is a jujitsu player. He founded Element, LMNT, the electrolyte company. Uh-huh. Uh, he's got a podcast. He does a ton of stuff on health and diet. And for anybody wanting to get a unbiased, data-driven view of the ag production chain, that is the best read I've seen in quite some time. Well, I'm going to check those out. We've got Traveler's Gift, we've got Red Notice, and we've got Sacred Cow. That's one of the hacks of having your own podcast. I get great book recommendations from guests. And How do you keep up on all that? <laughs> I've, got just, I've just got stacks and stacks of books, and the, the minute I finish one, i got two more. I think I think my backpack has five in, in it right now. I, I dip in and out of chapters. Um, so, uh, yeah, I read the one book, uh, what was it, Limitless by Jim Quick about how to learn, and my brain just resonated with that side of it. So, all right, I got just a couple more questions for you, Jeff. I'll get you wrapped up and get you out of here. Now, when we first uh, started chatting before the show, I had mentioned that the small business surgeon was aimed at guys maybe five, maybe 10 years behind us in the business cycle, uh, looking for a little bit of advice and looking for a little bit of, uh, of knowledge from guys further along. If you could go back and uh, give yourself one piece of advice, maybe five or 10 years ago, what would you say? What would you tell yourself? Ooh, man, <laughs> I'd probably kick my own ass for a couple of different things just to be quite transparent. I mean, we've all got those, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I think Warren Buffett said it, so I don't want to take credit, but you know, who you marry is your biggest business decision ever. So be I, mindful of that. That's the truth. Yeah. 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 And when you start to think, you know, something realize you probably don't and just stay humble. I mean, you earn your spot. I came out of college at 22 and thought I was going to fix everything. And here I am at 40. And I'm like, man, I was really dumb 10 years ago and I was doing okay. I wonder how dumb I'm going to think I am today when I'm 50. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, it's just a matter of having good karma, being a good person and doing the right thing when nobody's looking. And I know all those things sound very, very cliche, but you can't teach character. Yeah. And you can teach people to run a bulldozer. You can teach people to rope a cow. You can teach people to ride a horse, but you can't teach them character. And that's on you to manage yourself. And at the end of the day, you know, that's something for me that's just a not negotiable. Right. I mean, I've lost, I've lost money because it was the right thing to do because we had a deal. And that kind of integrity is something that follows you good or bad for your entire career. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, the, the best way I've found to teach character is to just lead by example. The people yeah. around you will pick it up and they'll go, yeah. All right, sage advice, Jeff. Thank you very much. All right, for my final question to wrap up our time together on the podcast, um, owner of coloradocraftbeef.com, tell us where we can find you online and where we can follow you on uh, on your social media. Uh, we are on all channels as Colorado Craft Beef. So we're Instagram probably Instagram more heavy than anything. We're active on Facebook to a degree. Uh, we've got some other things cooking in the background. So we'll have a little more connectivity with the rest of the audience, probably in the next six months. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you want to see ranch life, uh, the Instagram feed is ranch life and steak. So, <laughs> well, I do actually want to see ranch life. So I'm going to go and, uh, I'm going to follow that Instagram right now. And, uh, I'm also going to go and look at buying a freezer because now I'm intrigued at buying um, a half a cow off you after I've seen looking on your website. So uh, I think that's <laughs> no, I think it's a good idea. I, you know, well, and you know what we do have is we have a subscription availability, so you can subscribe for a certain amount every month or every two months. Uh, we ship to all 50 states, so we we have subscribers in Hawaii. Uh, our top four states are Florida, Colorado, Texas, and. Uh, California. You you wouldn't believe this. My business partner ran home at lunch because he had a food shipment that had just got delivered that he needed to go home and grab and put in the freezer. So yep. it's yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely something that's become uh, commonplace. People are getting very used to having shit just dropped well, onto their doorstep. So well, and you know the one thing we do a ton of work around the holidays with corporate gifts. So yeah, no I doubt. just got a call. I got a call from our bank today. They they want 150 gift boxes. So that's another thing. If you want something personalized, if you want something with a note in it, uh, you know, our bank, our bank will send us gift cards for everybody. 
and we collate those with the box orders so that you get a personalized box delivered and you didn't have to do it. Uh, that is something we and our team uh, take care of for you and we but do ship nationally. This will air towards the end of October. So guys, if you're listening and you haven't sorted out corporate Christmas presents yet, um, steak, I don't think you'd go wrong with steak, could you? Uh, I don't think so. But the other option we have is we do have a summer sausage line. So you can have a smaller price point. It's non-perishable. Uh, but it goes well as a charcuterie board for the holidays. Dude, I love it. And who doesn't like charcuterie boards? Yeah. How, how do you like the sales transition? I went right from ag investor to salesman. So. I love it. I love it. <laughs> for those of you listening, take note. He was offering value and then he even had a down sell for even if you're uh, even if that was too much for your budget. So, yeah, I, I love it. Um, ColoradoCraftBeef.com, right, Jeff? Yes, sir. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to go follow you all on Instagram and then uh, see about buying a freezer, man. Thank you so much for coming on and doing the show, Jeff. I had a great time, man. I did too, man. Be happy to come back whenever you want. Love it. All right, guys, that was Jeff Smith, the owner of ColoradoCraftBeef.com. Run over there, show him some love, and uh, you never know. Maybe there's a, uh, a good Christmas gift in all that stuff for you. I know for a fact I'm going to be uh, stocking up a freezer with beef here in a not too distant future um you'll be good stay safe have a great week and i'll be back this friday with another episode of friday fire i'll see you all later This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week. The Small Business Surgeon was recorded at Texas Media Foundry in historic downtown Bryan, Texas. Check them out at txfoundry.com or on social media at txfoundry. Thanks for tuning in.